The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Appreciate you being here today. This morning we are going to start a study of the little book of 3 John. Now if you remember, it's been a little while, 1 John was a circular letter that was written to several churches. It was supposed to go around on this circuit. 2 John was addressed to one local church and its leader. And 3 John is written to an individual, Gaius. Now, we don't know much about this man except we lear- what we learn from him in this epistle, which is not much at all, other than he was a faithful Christian leader in a local church that was under the care of John. Now, this little letter is only entitled 3 John because it's slightly shorter than 2 John. 2 John has only 245 Greek words, making it... Shorter than any other letter in the New Testament, with the exception of 3 John, that has 219 Greek words. That's why, so I say, we should be able to get through this in a year. There's not that much here, right? (laughs) Many think the length of both 2nd and 3rd John is governed by the size of a single sheet of papyrus, which would have measured about 25 by 20 centimeters. For you Americans, that's uh, about 10 by 8 inches. 2 John deals with the problem of heretical, itinerant preachers, while 3 John deals with an admonition to help itinerant Christian preachers. So 2 John is warning about these men who are traveling around bringing corruption. 3 John is more encouraging the people to support these preachers who are out there preaching the truth. Now, like 2 John, this one-page letter was written from the elder who I believe was John Eliezer, also known as Lazarus. And it's my opinion that Lazarus wrote the fourth gospel, first, second, third John, and the Revelation. Third John 1.1 says, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Now here John Eliezer, again Lazarus, called himself the elder. He tells us that he's writing to Gaius. John tells us he loves Gaius and the truth. And as in all of John's writing, truth is a central concept in 3 John. Some form of the word true appears seven times in this short little letter. He mentions it in verse 1, twice in verse 3, in 4, in 8, in 12, plus the word true in verse 12. So it gives us seven uses. The number seven is the number of completion, the number of totality. Now we're going to come back next week and spend more time on verse 1. But for the rest of our time this morning, we're going to look at verse 2. We're going to kind of focus on this verse. It says, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Now, does anybody know what group uses this verse to support their doctrinal beliefs? The health, wealth, the prosperity teachers... They claim this verse proves conclusively that Christians will always prosper in direct proportion to the condition of their spiritual life. In other words, if you're walking close to God, you'll be rich. You'll be healthy. Everything you do will turn out fine. If you are in poverty, 
you must be in sin. You're not walking with the Lord. Kenneth Copeland, hopefully you know that name, big player in the health wealth movement, on page 51 of his book called The Laws of Prosperity, talking about 3 John, verse 2, says this, We must realize that it's God's will for you to prosper. This is available to you, and frankly, it would be stupid of you not to partake of it. It's just there, you know, you can just do well if you just are living for the Lord. Now, this verse is not a declaration from God for the whole body of Christ. Nor should it be viewed as a promise, okay? It merely records the prayer or even the wish of John for his friend Gaius. This epistle is modeled after the typical letter format of the first century. William Barclay points out this fact by quoting that a pagan ship's captain, which uses almost identical phraseology as that found here in 3 John 2, just writing a letter to his friend. Howard Marshall in the New International Commentary confirms Barclay's view in stating that the elder John follows the tradition custom of his time by expressing good wishes to his friend Gaius. It's like us saying, hey, I hope you're doing well. They've taken that verse and turned it into a doctrine and just, it's a little bit crazy here, people. This is not, I repeat, this is not a universal declaration from God with regard to His will for all believers. To construe it that way is to remove it from its literary and historical context. The Bible is written for us, but it's not written to us. And we need to understand that. Paul's commands to Timothy to watch out for Alexander. Paul's command to bring the cloak before winter. And his instruction to Titus to remain in Crete are all part of the Word of God, but they're not written to us. But many people fail to make that distinction. In the case of the prosperity teachers, they have confused the difference between an individual address and a universal promise. Now, I want to focus on this verse this morning because we need to realize that this false teaching is taking over churchianity, especially in America. But it's not just in America. We've exported this doctrine all around the world, believe it or not. In a time poll, a full 61% believe that God wants people to be prosperous. Now, the proponents of this health-wealth view are teaching that God wants you, all of you, to be healthy, wealthy, pain-free, and to prosper in whatever you do. That sounds good, doesn't it? Sign me up. That sounds great. People love hearing this type of message. I mean, what could possibly be wrong with the message that God wants you, every one of His children, to be healthy, to be wealthy, to be pain-free, and to prosper in everything you do? The only problem with this message is it isn't true. That's the only thing wrong with it. Small thing, right? So, I have to ask, does truth matter? And if truth matters, and John's going to make a big deal about truth, like I said, because it matters to him, 
than it does. And especially when we're talking about God and we're talking about the Bible. We need an accurate understanding of what the Bible says. I'm sure that you're familiar with some of the following quotes from the health wealth teaching. You can have what you say. This is part of the name it, claim it, blab it, grab it. Okay, just as long as you can say it, you can get it. The reason you haven't been healed is that you don't have enough faith. Have you heard that? You know, you go to somebody in a wheelchair, you go to somebody who's dealing with some devastating disease, and you say, it's just your faith. That's, you, if you believed, you could get out of this problem. We can write our own ticket with God if we decide what we want, believe that it's ours, and confess it. Again, you just, whatever you want. Just claim it, and it will be yours. He wants you rich and healthy. What is the desire of your heart? Name it. Claim it by faith, and it's yours. Your Heavenly Father has promised it. It's right there in the Bible. Really? I haven't been able to find that in the Bible. Now, such statements reflect the models for which set forth a theology of the spoken word. It's, it's called rheumatology. All right? In other words, it's thought actuation. It's commonly known as positive confession. You just say it. And if you say it in faith, you can get it. This stresses the inherent power of words and thought. That's why don't say things that, you know, don't say you're sick. That's a negative confession. Now, some who teach this system argue that just as God, by faith, spoke the world into creation, so the Christian can speak and actually bring things into existence by faith. Many of those in the word faith, it's a word of faith movement. I don't know if you've heard that. You know, it's, again, it's all about what you confess and what you're believing for. People like Charles Capps, Jerry Savelli, they teach that God had faith in His faith. And they use Scripture, such as Mark eleven twenty two, Yeshua answered them, have faith in God. But see, the, the thing is here, they'll take this verse and they translate it like this, have the faith of God. You see the difference there? Greek scholar A.T. Robinson very adequately shows that the phrase is not to be translated in the subjective genitive, meaning that the noun is the subject of the action, or that God is the subject of faith, such as have faith of God. But it's to be translated in the objective genitive, meaning that the noun is the object of the action, that God is the object of faith. He goes on to insist that translating it the subjective genitive is preposterous. He says, it is not the faith that God has, but the faith of which God is the object. And that's what Yeshua is saying in Mark. Have faith in God. Not They're saying the faith of God, so God did it, you can do it. Basically, that's what they're saying. You're little gods, you can do whatever God wants. People... We have to understand an incorrect Bible hermeneutic combined with the desire for complete perfection have led many in the faith camp to deny the reality of sickness and disease. For example, Kenneth Hagin, in his book, The Name of Jesus, that's the name of the book, he says this, In teaching on divine healing and health, I have often said I haven't had a headache in so many years. At this writing, it has been 45 years. 
I guess the devil got tired of hearing me say it. Just a few months ago, as I left the office building and started home, suddenly my head started hurting. Someone might say, well, you had a headache. No, I didn't have one. I don't have headaches. I haven't had a headache since August 1934. Forty-five years have come and gone, and I haven't had a headache, not one. The last headache I actually remember having was in August 1933. I haven't had a headache. I'm not expecting to have one. But if I had a headache, I wouldn't tell anybody. And if somebody asked me how I was feeling, I would say, I'm fine, thank you. You see what he's doing? They're just denying the reality that they're living in. No, I, that's a, I got a headache, but I'm not, no, I'm not saying I have one. Because that would be claiming it. Now, it's obvious from the above statement that Hagen doesn't consider having a headache to be real. <laughs> That's because to him and other faith movement teachers, symptoms are not indications of sickness or disease. They are distractions from the devil, tempting him or her into a negative confession. The name it, claim it, false teaching that the health wealth teachers push can be deadly. It can be destructive to people. People in wheelchairs, people who are really sick and you just don't have enough faith, what does that do to them? But it literally can also destroy their life. In Larry Parker's book, We Let Our Son Die, he tells the story of his son Wesley's tragic death. He said, Wesley Parker was an active 11-year-old boy, a diabetic, taking regular insulin shots. But one day at church, after hearing a word of faith message to confess and claim their son's healing, they did that. They claimed his healing. And so since he was healed, Larry and Alice Parker intentionally withheld their son's insulin. As a result, Wesley went into a diabetic coma. And in spite of warnings, the parents believed the prosperity gospel teaching. They could not make a negative confession. Don't say he's sick. Make a positive confession. We believe he's healed, even though he's in a coma. Three days later, Wesley died. But because of revelation knowledge, these parents believe they had received through the Word of Faith teaching. They, had a, they held a resurrection service instead of a funeral service. But in the end... Wesley wasn't resurrected. He was dead. Larry and Alice Parker were arrested and jailed and then charged, tried, and convicted of manslaughter and child abuse. Though they believed they were right, their thinking was wrong. This story tragically fits too many people who have let the prosperity theology become central in their thinking. Too many discover too late what the Bible actually teaches. Let me ask you something this morning. How do you feel about the health-wealth gospel? And I ask you this because I want to know, are you indifferent to it? Do you tolerate it? Do you think Joel Osteen's a nice guy? You know, I've heard Christians say, oh man, I love listening to Osteen. He's just so encouraging. Here's the problem. He says he's a pastor. 
He says he's teaching the Word of God. He's not. He's lying. The largest church in America. And people flock there to hear how wonderful they are. And how much they can have. See, here's the problem. If you don't hate the health, wealth, gospel, if it doesn't make you sick with anger, one of two things are true. Either you don't understand what they're teaching, or you don't understand the gospel. Because if you understand the gospel and you know what the teachers of this health, wealth, gospel are preaching, it should make you sick. And if it doesn't, you need to wake up. A false gospel is sweeping through our nation while we sit quietly. We think it's harmless. It wasn't harmless to Wesley. Yeshua said that the truth would set us free. I think that Paul's words to the Philippian church are pertinent for us today. Paul wrote this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So Paul's telling the believers at Philippi that he wants to hear that they're standing firm. This is from the Greek word steko. Steko is a military term that means to be at point in a war, to stand fast, to be stabilized. It's used of a soldier who will not budge from his post no matter how intense the battle gets. Paul wants them to remain at their post and not move. No compromise with error or sin. No compromise with doctrine or in conduct. Paul says standing firm. He has in mind resisting temptation to doctrinal and moral compromise. This military metaphor has to do with holding a position under tremendous attack. Paul tells them that they are to be striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The word striving here is from the Greek word sunathleo, and it comes from the word soon, which means together or with, and athleo means to engage in competition or conflict. And it carries the association of a contest in war and in the arena where the gladiators struggle to life and death. This is a call for team effort, struggling together. Believers, we are to be standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And I dare say the gospel message is so unclear today, it's a wonder that anybody has a clue what it is. And I really think the health, wealth gospel has affected so many of us, even beyond, we might say, I'm against it, I don't think that's right, but it just has affected our thinking, and when something doesn't go our way, we feel like, hey God, what's the deal here? I mean, you're supposed to be my cosmic bellboy, aren't you, to give me all my three wishes or whatever else? The gospel, people, is the good news that God has provided redemption for sinful man through the death of His Son. This redemption is available to all who believe. Faith in Christ can take a sinner who is depraved in mind, body, and spirit and cleanse him from all sin. Make him righteous in the sight of God and give him eternal life. That's the good news. The gospel is not... I trust Christ to pay my sin debt, then life is perfect. 
everything comes up roses. It doesn't work that way. I still have flat tires. People still get broken bones. They have car accidents. They have arguments with their spouse. They have financial struggles. But see, in this system, when that happens, they're like, God has abandoned me. Because I'm, everything's supposed to be perfect for me. But this is reality. This is life. Christians live in the world. They struggle with all these things. They still have all these problems. The proponents of the health wealth gospel teach that God rewards increasing levels of faith with greater amounts of health and wealth. The closer you get to God, the wealthier you'll be and everything will go your way. They say God wants you to be rich and healthy and pain-free, problem-free. How did something so far from the truth of the Bible ever come to be taught? That's a good question. Well, let me give you a little history on the prosperity gospel. Some of the earliest proponents of the positive thinking were spiritual innovators like Phineas Quimby or Mary Baker Eddy. Ever heard of Mary Baker Eddy? They're founders of the New Thought Movement and Christian Science. That's Mary Baker Eddy, Eddy Patterson Fry. You know, that's her name. She got all these, but she was Christian Science. And by the turn of the 20th century, Essek William Kenyon, a pastor and founder of Bethel Bible Institute, had incorporated similar ideas into his preaching on the finished work of Christ. Kenyon wrote that Christians could make a positive confession to bring emotional and physical desires into being. In other words, we just create things by our words. We're like little gods. What I confess, he is purported to have said, I possess. So I claim it, I got it. In the 1930s, Kenneth Hagin added Kenyon's teaching to the Pentecostal beliefs to create what would become the Word of Faith movement. An Assembly of God pastor, Hagin taught Christians that they could get rich by mustering up enough faith. Say it, do it, receive it, tell it, he said. He touted the Rhema doctrine, which held that words spoken in faith must be fulfilled spawning slogans like the name it, claim it. In the 1960s, a young associate of Oral Roberts, Kenneth Copeland, began teaching that faith is a force which, when confessed out loud, brings material results. You hear what they're saying? We are literally creating things by our words. Within a couple of decades, Word of Faith had grown into a sizable offshoot of the charismatic faith. Now, these teachings of these men may be summarized as follows. God created man in God class, or as little gods, they'll say, with the potential to exercise the God kind of faith and calling things into existence and living in prosperity and success as sovereign beings. So you got to think to yourself, you're just a little God. God spoke it, came into pass, you speak it. It'll come to pass. To be in debt then, or to be sick, or to be left by one's spouse, and not to have these problems solved by claiming God's promises, shows a lack of faith. While certain aspects of the above doctrine may vary from teacher to teacher, the general outline remains the same in each case. And the tentacles of this kind of theology have reached out far and wide. 
And of course it appeals to people because it demands nothing. You just got to believe. And it promises that if you have enough faith, you'll get rich. You'll be healthy. That's a popular message. Listen to what some of his teachers say. Kenneth Hagin writes, I am fully convinced. I would die saying it is so. It's the plan of our Father God in His great love and in His great mercy that no believer should ever be sick. That every believer should live his full lifespan down here on the earth and that every believer should finally just fall asleep in Jesus. So, no believer should ever be sick. So, what does that do if you're going to a church like this and this is their message and someone in the church is sick, what do you do? You hide it, right? Because if you're sick, you must be in sin. You don't want to go to church sick because then they'll know you're in sin. So you just stay home and say you're traveling that weekend or something. You just, you know, do you understand the condemnation this brings? The judgment on people who aren't feeling well, who aren't doing well? The cardinal fault with the prosperity gospel is one central tenet. God wills the financial prosperity of every Christian. Therefore, a believer to live in poverty is living outside of God's will. Normally tucked away somewhere is another affirmation. Since we are God's children, we should go first class. We should have the biggest and the best of everything. Because we're God's children, right? We deserve it. Well, thanks to Joel Osteen's book, Your Best Life Now, someone came to me years ago and gave me this book. I never heard of Joel Osteen. You've got to read this book. This book is awesome. I took it home. I read two chapters, and I said, this book is trash. It's just all about them and their material lust for a house and how they, you know, God fulfilled their lust for this house because they trusted God. It just, it's very, it was sickening, people, okay? But that book has sold over 8 million copies. Hey, people love what they're preaching, okay? And this belief has swept way beyond its Pentecostal base and it's reached into all of churchianity, okay? And Joel's got a little group of people that gather together every Sunday to hear him. So let me just say, it may seem foolish on my part to disagree theologically with the man who pastors the largest church in America, but I'll do it anyway, okay? <laughs> it is said that Olstein has thirty to 50,000, there's different reports, people that attend church every Sunday. Millions more tune into his national and international television broadcasts. And certainly one might assume a man with this incredible following must be on the right track, right? Well, he's not. He's a false teacher. He's preaching a false gospel, okay? Joel Olstein's wild popularity is truly a testament to the condition of the church in America. His motivational speaking tickles the ears of the not really convicted of sin. His per- he purposely avoids entire areas of God's truth, resulting in a lopsided, sugar-sweet gospel that has next to nothing to do with God's glory or Christ's atonement and everything to do with self-improvement. That's what this gospel is about. It's about you and how you can be better. It's not even half a gospel. It's no gospel at all. And that's the reason why thousands of people flock to feed upon it and millions of others watch it on TV. It has no holy God, no divine wrath, no need for atonement, 
No repentance, no death to self. It's the polar opposite. It's all about me. How can I have more in life? How can I be happy? How can I be fulfilled? It's nothing about serving God. Human religion invariably invents gods for utilitarian reasons. They invent gods that give them what they want. They invent deities to serve them rather than the other way around. And the health-wealth theology has turned Christianity into a system no different from the lowest of human religions. It's a form of voodoo where God can be coerced, conjoiled, manipulated, controlled, and exploited for the Christian's own end. That's why God exists, isn't it? To give me whatever I want. Let's look at an excerpt from one of Joel's messages to his thirty to 50,000 members so we can understand just what he is teaching. All right, this is a long quote, but just try to follow along with it to understand what Joel is telling people here, all right? Because of the price he paid, we have a right to live in total victory. Not partial victory to where we have a good family, we have good health, but we constantly struggle in our finances. That's not total victory. If God did it for you in one area, He can do it for you in another area. Get a vision for it. I know people who have plenty of money, and they have good health, but they can't get along in relationships. There's always strife in their home. That is not total victory. Maybe God's blessed you, and you have a good family and a good job, but you had pain in your body for years and years. You used to stand against it. You used to believe you could be free. But now it's been so long, you've just decided, this is my lot in life. But Jesus has paid the price that we may be totally free. That means free from bad habits and addictions, free from discouragement and depression, free from poverty and lack, free from low self-esteem. God wants us to be totally free. The scripture tells us to take hold of all that Christ died and rose again for. God made you healthy and whole. Our original state is total freedom. Let me assure you, He didn't create you to be average. He didn't create you to be barely get by and have all kinds of things holding you back. You've, you've got to get to the right vision. God created you to be totally free, to have peace in your mind, to walk in divine health, to have good relationships, to have plenty to pay your bills. You have rights and privileges. Christians, you have rights. You have privileges. One of those privileges is total victory. We're supposed to be unquestionably free. That means free in our mind, free from worry, free from poverty and lack. No matter what the bank account looks like, now catch this, no matter what your bank account looks like, our attitude is, I know I'm blessed. In other words, you got no money, but you pretend you don't. Okay? I know I'm blessed, and I cannot be cursed. Whatever I touch is going to prosper and succeed. Don't pay attention to your bank account. Claim it. Name it. So people, by Joel's definition, walking with God in spiritual maturity means that you're wealthy, you're healthy, with good relationships, living in victory without pain and anxiety. The problem with this view is that it excludes Yeshua and the New Testament church. How does Yeshua fit this description? Was he rich? Was Yeshua rich? Not hardly. Throughout his three and a half year ministry, he walked throughout the land 
without even possessing a home to return to. He was homeless, basically. He was supported by others at a very basic level at all times. I guess we'd be tempted to call this poverty, wouldn't we? Did Yeshua have problems with relationships? (laughs) All the religious leaders hated him. His family rejected him. Peter denied him. Judas betrayed him. And the people shouted, crucify him. After three and a half years of walking through the land, healing people, crucify him. I guess Yeshua wasn't living in total victory. How about in the area of pain? Did Yeshua suffer pain? Well, he was scourged, beaten, spit upon, crucified. That's pain, people. So this life of victory that Joel talks about was not lived by Yeshua. And the Bible says that we're to imitate Yeshua. We're to live the way He lived. 1 John 2.6 says, Whoever says he abides in Him. Abide has to do with remaining in a close relationship, being in an intimate relationship. Whoever says they're in an intimate relationship with Christ ought to walk in the same way which He walked. In other words, if you're in a relationship with Christ, you should look like Him. If we do this, if we live like Yeshua, we're going to have the same problems that Yeshua had. If we live like Christ, we're going to miss out on the victories that Joel talks about. Well, how about the disciples of our Lord? Did they live in total victory? Were they healthy, wealthy, and pain-free? Not the ones in my Bible. None of the apostles were rich. All underwent incredible testing, suffering, and at least in Paul's case, dire health problems. Extreme testing in the area of material privation. Let's look at the apostle Paul. He was a godly man, a man who walked in fellowship with God. God used Paul to write most of the New Testament. Did Paul ever have problems in relationships? He spent a lot of time in prison, okay? 2 Timothy 4.16 says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. That doesn't sound like good relationships. May it not be charged against them. How about in the area of physical pain? Did Paul walk in victory over physical pain? Did he name it and claim it and all his problems went away? Look at 2 Corinthians 12.7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation. In other words, God's showing me all this neat stuff. And so don't get my head all puffed up and don't become proud. He says, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So here we see that Paul had a physical problem. The Word of God tells us that he had this problem, and it wasn't because he wasn't walking in total victory. It was to keep him humble. Okay? And listen, that might not be a good thing to the prosperity teachers, but biblically it is because the Bible says God honors the humble, okay? God rejects the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You want grace? Then I guess humility is the way to go. 2 Corinthians 12.8, Paul said, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. I wonder why he didn't, didn't confess it was gone and just go on about his life. No, he prayed, God, take this away. 
Notice God's answer to Paul. He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul doesn't boast about his total victory over poverty and pain. He boasts in his weaknesses. Notice why. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. When I'm weak, this would be physical sickness, poverty, bad relationships. When I'm weak, I'm strong. What does he mean? When I have problems in my life and I sense this weakness, I turn to Christ. And then I have strength. When you're walking in pride, you don't turn to Christ. I got this. Stand back. Watch it happen. Let's look at Paul's personal testimony and see if it fits into Joel's idea of total victory. Okay? 2 Corinthians 11, 23-27. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I am talking like a madman, okay? With far greater labors far more imprisonments with countless beatings. Okay, this is Paul. This is his best life now. Constantly beating. Often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jew 40 lashes. Five times, people. They would take them, they would tie them to a post, and they would have this whip with had bits of metal and bone in tied into the thrash, so when it hit your back, it would pull skin off. They only gave you 39 lashes, because they were allowed to give 40, so they gave you 39, because they didn't want to go over. Five times that happened to Paul. That doesn't sound like his best life now. At the hands of the Jews, he says, three times I was beaten with rods. Again, they would take a bundle of rods, usually with a sword in the middle. So when they hit you, the rods would separate and the sword would slice. Three times. I think I ought to quit a long time ago. Okay? This is Paul's life. Once I was stoned. He doesn't mean marijuana here, okay? He means they actually took rocks and they tried to crush the life out of them. And they're not picking up rocks out of your garden, you know, the little Tony stones and throwing them at them. No, they would put you... They would elevate themselves, put you in a hole or put you down below and take big rocks and try to drop them and crush the life out of you. They thought he was dead. He got stoned. They thought he was dead, but he wasn't dead. Okay. And you know what he did the next day? He went back out preaching. Three times he said, I was shipwrecked. I'm just saying, God, you can't keep my ship together. I'm your servant. What's wrong with this? A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure." I just wonder, do you think Joel ever read this? So he must said Paul didn't, wasn't living his best life. 
Paul didn't know how to name and claim it. The Rhema movement hadn't started yet, the Word of Faith movement in his day, obviously. So he just dealt with this. This is a man who I believe, in my opinion, and many others' opinion, was the greatest Christian that ever lived. Anybody want to sign up for this lifestyle? This is what living for Christ and walking in obedience to God looked like for Paul. Didn't look like Joel, okay? So how many people want to sign up for Paul's kind of life, best life now? You know, here's what I believe. If Joel were to preach this as God's will for believers, he wouldn't need such a big building. The crowd would thin out really quickly, okay? Yeah. When the church proclaims that God desires to provide wealth to you and that you lack it because of faith, what does that say to the millions of godly people who live in poverty? And not just in our country, you know, around the world. Every Sunday, 30 Kenyan slum dwellers cram into a 10-foot by 20-foot sanctuary to worship the Lord Yeshua. It isn't pretty, but it's their church. A church made up of some of the poorest people on earth. But these folks' economic inferiority doesn't imply their spiritual inferiority, as some of these teachers would teach. These people have no access to health care, but they call on the Lord to take care of them. They have a level of trust in God's sovereignty that far surpasses so many of us. When these people pray, give us this day our daily bread, they literally mean it. They're trusting God to provide their most basic needs. This little church has a 22-year-old worship leader named John, who miraculously managed to get through high school, but couldn't go to college. It's way beyond what he could afford. Well, filled with compassion for the children in the slum, he started a school in the church which he personally teaches 50 kids, spanning all the elementary grades. When he was asked how he was supported financially, he just smiled and said, there's nobody to pay me a salary. I just trust the Lord to meet my needs. So in the bowels of this slum in Kenyan, we find this little church filled with giants who do not know where their next meal is coming from, yet in the midst of their poverty and pain, They worship God in joyous praise. This is victory, people. This is total victory. How how hard is it to praise God when everything is just the way you want it to be? You got your bills are all paid. You got plenty of money. You're living in a nice house. No relationship problems. Everything's wonderful. And you say, praise God. Praise God for what? Anybody would praise God for that. When you're in the slum in Kenya, and you don't know where your next meal is coming from, and you praise God, That's something, okay? Because they're praising God for who He is, not for what He's given them. Believers, we need to understand that whenever Christians will live as they ought to live in this world, they will live righteous lives and they will aggressively seek to spread the true gospel and to make disciples, when they stand for righteousness, the natural outcome will be suffering. Yeshua wants His disciples to understand and expect suffering. And so does Paul. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Yeshua will be persecuted. Now this verse doesn't say all Christians can expect persecution. 
That's not what it says. What's it say? All who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. It is godliness that brings suffering because when you stand with God and when you speak out against sin, when you speak out against abortion, when you speak out against homosexuality and same-sex marriages and immorality, you're going to suffer for it. You can expect it. Today, parents who speak out at school board meetings against critical race theory are being classified as domestic terrorists and monitored by the FBI. Parents! At a school board meeting, because they disagree with what's being taught there. But parents around the country are rising up, and they're saying, we're sick of this stuff, and they're firing school boards, and they're dealing with it. And that's what needs to happen, people. We need to stand against sin. In several passages, Paul writes with the assumption that suffering and affliction are a necessary part of his apostolic ministry. But in other passages, Paul doesn't limit the suffering and affliction to just the apostolic ministry. He assumes it's an essential part of discipleship. Again, when you live godly in this world, you're going to be persecuted for it. Because people don't like it. You blow the standard. Ruins what they think when someone stands up for the Lord. This is the consistent emphasis of Scripture that inseparably joined to discipleship are hardship, trial, difficulty, conflict, and pain. If you're a Christian, you just keep your mouth shut and go with the flow. No, you're not going to have persecution. It's only when you stand against the tide. Believers, we need to understand that pain and suffering and poverty are part of life. And become a Christian doesn't make them all go away. Our wise, holy, and loving God has a purpose in pain and suffering. Notice what Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1.8. We don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. You think he, Joel would want them to be unaware. Because, you know, that would ruin the whole prosperity gospel. But Paul said, I don't want you to be aware. For we were so utterly burdened Beyond our strength, we despaired of life itself. That doesn't sound like total victory that Joel was talking about. But Paul tells us why they were suffering. Please get this. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. We feared for our own life, but the reason was so we trust Christ. Again, when things are going our way, we tend to just kind of slack off and not need to trust them, but they're despairing of their life. They're looking to God to keep themselves alive. Believers, suffering weans us from self-reliance. Many men and women have testified that God taught them this lesson, that they are dependent upon Him by taking away all the things they had mistakenly depended upon. Much of the pain we experience is to bring about a continual dependence upon the grace and the power of God. Suffering is designed to cause us to walk by God's ability, His power, His provision, rather than our own. It causes us to turn from our resources to His resources. Listen, believers, I think you'll understand this. When the sun is shining, when the sky is blue, when you're feeling great, when you have plenty of money, everybody loves you, 
there's just this tendency to ignore God. Let me ask you something. When you go on vacation, you saved your money, you go somewhere, you're on some tropical island, you're just, you know, sitting there with your feet in the water, enjoying life. How much are you focused on God? It's like, I'm good, everything's good. We don't even need God on this vacation, okay? It's when the trials of life come in that we're like, oh yeah, i got to turn to God. There's just this tendency when everything is perfect, we don't, I'm good, we don't need anything. There's a tendency to trust ourselves and just about totally forget God. It's when the crisis comes that we woke up, oh yeah, oh, uh, God, can you help me here? And this is why God warned the Israelites. He did not warn the Israelites about poverty. Okay, He warned them about prosperity. Deuteronomy 8.11 Take care lest you forget Yahweh your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes which I command you today. So God is warning the Israelites and He's warning them of the danger that wealth will bring. He goes on, 8, 12 through 14. Lest when you have eaten and are full, okay, get the picture, God will plenty of food, I'm full, I have built, you have built houses and you live in them, when your herds and your flocks multiply, your silver and your gold is multiplied, all that you have is multiplied, then your heart becomes lifted up and you forget Yahweh. Your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is not poverty here that causes them to be proud. It's wealth. Every, I got everything. All Everything I have is multiplied. I'm doing so well. Your heart's lifted up and you forget the Lord. We see the same thing in Proverbs. Proverbs 38 and 9. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. I think this is a great verse for Christians to quote as they buy lottery tickets. <laughs> give me neither poverty nor riches. I don't need the ticket anyway. I'll forget it. If I'm going to pray like that, no sense in buying a ticket, right? Feed me with food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who's the Lord? I got everything. Why do I need Him? But lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. There's a danger, people, of denying the Lord when we are full. When all is well. Believers, the truth is that life for a believer can be quite difficult at times. Because God wants us close to Him. And those difficulties drive us to the Lord. God doesn't promise us health wealth. He promises that if we live godly lives, we'll be persecuted. The gospel message is not about you living in total victory over poverty, disease, and bad relationships. The gospel is about God putting His only beloved Son to death to pay the sin debt of all His children. God doesn't promise us a life of wealth and comfort. He promises us eternal life. God wants us to trust Him, to live in dependence upon Him, and the trials of life help that come about. So we have seen that Yeshua didn't live in total victory that Joel preaches, and neither did the apostles or the saints down through the years. When you go to the Scriptures, you see the health-wealth message is not biblical. So why is it that so many people are buying into this false message? I think the main reason is it just sounds so good. Doesn't it? 
It sounds so good. Yeah, listen, who doesn't want to go here? You don't hear about your sin. You don't hear about anything you did wrong. You don't hear you're a bad person. You just go and you, your best life now is out there. Just go get it. Who doesn't want to be healthy, wealthy, and problem-free? Let's face it, the prosper, this prosperity part of this gospel really works for those preaching it. You know what I'm saying? The people who are preaching this health wealth stuff are doing okay. Kenneth Copeland's net worth is $760 million. Now listen, net worth is the value of all assets minus your liabilities. So this is what you have. If you cash out, that's your money. 760. Kenneth Copeland. Pat Robertson, 100 million. Joe Osteen, he's down the list there, 40 million. Largest church. I don't know what he's, where he's going wrong there, but he needs, a, he needs to talk to Kenny, and Kenny will give him some advice there. Creeflo Dollar, you ever heard of him? 27 mil. Creeflo went to his church and told him, listen, my jet is just not cutting it. I need a new jet. And they finally say, hey, look, that, no, we are, I mean, <laughs> no, do suffer in the jet you have, basically. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you got enough money, go buy your own, all right? So many are buying into this message because it sounds so good. It just sounds good. That's the primary reason. I mean, like I said, who doesn't want health? Who doesn't want wealth? Who doesn't want all these things? The second reason, I think, People are buying into this is because so few Christians know what the Bible actually teaches. They just don't know. They don't read their Bibles. They don't study their Bibles. So they don't know what God wants for them. So they hear a man up there using a verse here and there, and they're like, ah, see that verse? That makes sense. Yeah, that must be right. The church that's right next door to us over here, when they first moved in, he, he publishes a message on Facebook, so I was checking him out, trying to see, what's this guy all about? Well, he's a health wealth preacher. In one of his messages, he's preaching away, and he said that Job was delirious when he said, the Lord has taken away. He said, that's wrong. He said, Job was so overcome with trials and all his losses that that was wrong because God never takes away. God only gives. He only provides. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, please just read the next verse. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So, I've seen this before, people. It's like you're in a context, and they're pulling something out of context, totally out of context. You know, Kathy and I were a lot younger. When we go to Pennsylvania, we go to a Baptist church. And more Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, the message would always be the same. Different verses, but the same message. You know, and he's telling the message about the children of Israel and their victory. And they were losing, so they went and they got the ark of God and they brought the ark into the camp and they heard this loud roar and they got victory. And that you got to bring God into your life and you get this victory. And I thought, oh, just read a few more verses. They got their butts whipped and the ark took from them. <laughs> Same chapter, just a few verses down. Context, people. How do people get away with that? Because people, Christians, don't know their Bibles. We have to be familiar with the Word of God to know what it says. Believers, we need to know, we need to stand on the truth of God's Word that we may be a voice of reason in the midst of a cesspool of unbiblical teaching. Somebody has to stand against this. 
And as Paul said, we need to stand together for the faith of the gospel. We need to say this is wrong. We need to call people to the truth. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, it's a, it's a very encouraging message that the health, wealth, gospel is preaching. I can understand why so many people want to sign up for it. The problem is it's a lie. It's not even true. It does, the pyramid does work for those that talk. They are prospering. God, I pray you'd give believers a, a sense of understanding the Scriptures. Give us a heart to learn the Word of God, not just pull out selective verses, but to understand the totality of what the Word teaches. Father, may we desire to honor and serve you, not have you serve us. Thank you, Lord, for your incredible grace and patience with us. Amen. Amen.